Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. Prashant, how you doing? Not too bad. It's, uh, it's another week. It's another Monday. So, you know, chugging along as best as we can here. Absolutely. I know I was just... Uh, I turned my TV on for the first time today to, like, actually watch TV during the day. Like, usually I've... Maybe maybe on weekends or something, but most of it I've just been kind of on my computer since there's... Usually my TV's just constantly on ESPN, um, and since there's really been no sports, that hasn't been necessary. But it being NFL Draft Week, I did that today. It felt a little more normal. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, one of the first things... Uh, you know, I haven't really been watching much live television either until... Uh, really Sunday night when Last Dance came on, the Michael Jordan documentary with uh, the 97-98 Bulls. I mean, you know, when I grew up, I was a huge Chicago Bulls fan. I mean, how could you not? Everybody wanted to be like Michael Jordan, even if you were in Detroit. And so uh, that was kind of cool. And it was, again, very different for me to just turn on my TV and watch live television as well. So it's kind of nice to have a little bit of, uh, of sports back. And, and it was honestly funny. I don't know, Max, if you watched, but... Right after they finished the first two episodes, they they cut to Sports Center breaking down a documentary <laughs> about a team from from twenty years ago. You know, so it's it was just very interesting, and you can tell how starved everybody is for for sports right now. I actually did not watch. I was fact checking a feature that I had to get turned in. That you know, I don't know when it'll run, but I was you know hard at work at that. Uh, so I missed it, and uh, I could tell that I missed out because when I logged onto Twitter. I don't think I followed a single person who wasn't tweeting about it. So I, I'll get caught up, and I'll uh, I'll plan to watch live when they roll out parts three and four, I guess, next week. Yeah, I mean, it's been absolutely unbelievable. Those first two episodes were extraordinarily well done, and I'd be curious to see what the TV ratings are for it. I didn't, if someone's uh, seen the TV ratings already published, uh, yeah, send it's like them my 6. way. 6.1 million or something. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I would guarantee it's, it's going to be one of the biggest events uh, moving forward because the first two episodes were just shot so well. And it's, you know, even though some of these stories are, are pretty well known about Jordan and his, you know, uh, his tenacious, basically his tenacity and his kind of over the top. Uh, mentality, if you will, it's just fascinating to be able to go behind the curtains even more so than than what people already know at this point. Yeah, the Hollywood Reporter, six point one million viewers Sunday, uh, most watched ESPN documentary ever. Yeah, I mean, it's only going to get better and better, and I think it's going to continue to build with how well they delivered on the first two episodes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep, that makes sense. I was uh, watching something a little less. Uh, 
a little less prolific, but I still was really enjoying the Peyton's Places marathon that was on ESPN just now. I, watching him interview uh, his dad and Dan Marino and Eli Manning and had a pretty good time with that. So a lot, lot lower stakes, but it was actually, it was closer to something that felt like normal, which I really enjoyed. I've also spent countless hours on the uh, pro football focus uh, mock draft simulator for the NFL draft this week. So I'm, uh, I'm reaching. Uh, Are you just like trying to set yourself up to get disappointed when the lions don't do any of the things that they can do? I don't like, the 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 obsession with the simulator, I just enjoy the like. Oh, it could go this way. It could go this. Way. You know what I mean? Like, I just need the, I need the serotonin hit or whatever it is. You know. I mean, that's fair. I mean, you're basically going to get the serotonin hit all week to lead up, and then you're just going to get the uh, wave of depression that comes when the the Lions botch it and take Justin Herbert at third overall and just completely mess everything up. Well, you know, the I I feel like the Lions pick is pretty interesting. like that's got to be like the lock pick of the draft. Well, I guess Burrow at one is, but I, I, mean, I would say I'm more confident in the Lions ending up with Okuda than any other player team combination beyond Burrow at one or Burrow in Cincinnati and Young to the Redskins. That's fair, and I mean that being said, uh, the question, and I think ultimately, you know, for the Lions will be. Fine, the pairing is going to be Detroit Lions and, and, and Jeff Okuda, but the the key is if the Lions can make that so it's not the third overall pick, but they still end up with Jeff Okuda. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of different scenarios out there where maybe they can uh, get, you know, Miami to bite, trade up for Tua at three, uh, and then, you know, potentially you, you move back even more to, to nine, you get someone to trade up at five to take Justin Herbert, and, and maybe you come away at, you know, seven or eight, with potentially Jeff Okuda or another top player from that draft. Uh, so, Well, that is we'll the see. most fun thing about the simulator is that it does let you pull off trades and, like, the computer can approve or disapprove them. So if you want to, you really can uh, load up and just uh, see where it goes. I mean, I'm at the point right now where there's no point in psyching myself <laughs> up for a Detroit Lions draft. I'm just going to wait, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll know from the text message about Justin Herbert that uh, the Lions have done what, what – can be expected of them. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, all right. Anyways, we will um, we'll we'll dive into a different kind of prospect talk for the rest of the show. We're going to talk about already drafted hockey prospects, and specifically, we're going to talk about expectations for the top ten uh, current Red Wings prospects for next season. Kind of where where we think they'll be, what we think their role will be, and what are kind of fair expectations for them. What what we expect, basically their narrative to be and how it might change over the next year. And so I think probably pretty unanimous, fair to say, on who the number one prospect is, Moritz Sider. Yeah, I mean, this is very clearly Detroit's top prospect and arguably their best chance at an elite player. So no no qualms from me here. I think Moritz Sider is very easily Detroit's best player, uh, best prospect, I should say, at this point. What do we think, uh, I mean, what do we think his season will be? My, my, my prediction, I guess, is he's going to start the year in Detroit and I think he's going to start the year on the second pair. Yeah, I think that's about right. And, you know, it's it's fascinating to think about Moritz Satter because a, a lot of what we talked about this year with him is how well he was scoring in the AHL for a rookie defenseman, for a defenseman that was, you know, under the age of 20, stepping in and is basically his draft, uh, draft plus one year and stepping in and, and playing in a uh, one of the top leagues in, in the world and, and doing extraordinarily well at that. I mean, he scored really at a rate that was only, you know, right behind Rasmus Sandin and, 
And so I think he's done an outstanding job. And I think it would be very fair to say that he shows up on the second pair. And, and quite honestly, you know, this is a, for those of you that play fantasy hockey, I was just on the podcast, uh, keeping Carlson and they were, we were talking about a lot of the Detroit Red Wings, uh, players. And, and one of the sneaky, uh, things that I think is going to happen with more Siders, I think by the end of the season, he actually leads the Red Wings in ice time. Um, I think he is that good. And I think he has that kind of potential. I don't know that it'll necessarily give you that scoring from power play one offense or, or even power play two offense, but I think at even strength, the wings are going to end up finding he is a minute either, just like he's been in Grand Rapids. That's one of the things I'm most curious about because when we talk about him on the second pair, I am very, I, I think he has to play with one of Nemeth or DeKaiser. Just stylistically, it makes all the sense in the world. We've talked about that on a previous show. I think one of his great strengths as a player is how many minutes he can play in. How every, he can play every different situation. You never really have to say you got to get more Cider off the ice. So I expect him to be a big minute player over his career. But my only reservation in calling him a second pair player to start the year next year is I wonder if he's really playing one of the top four workloads out of the gate. How much sheltering are they trying to do with Cider, especially now that he's kind of been robbed of of a playoff run at the end of this year, which is usually a great opportunity for prospects to, to prove that they're going to hold up you know, it, it is sort of an increase in level without an increase in level, if that makes sense, going from AHL regular season to AHL playoffs. Um, so I think, you know, missing out on that is is uh, certainly for him going to be a bummer. But, you know, that's kind of my question is I think he'll play with a second pair um, defense partner. Does he get top four minutes right out of the gate or how long do we think that takes? Yeah. And to be quite honest, I, I think it happens right out of the gate because I think once you know, the Red Wings, uh, you know, front office gets a look at him at the NHL level and sees how poised and steady he is with the puck. I think he's going to force their hands a little bit. It's almost going to look a little bit like when Danny DeKaiser first showed up in, in 2012-2013. Uh, he immediately became one of Detroit's minute crunchers and minute eaters because he, he demonstrated that he was confident with the puck. He was poised. He made good decisions in the defensive zone. And uh, you know, Detroit didn't necessarily have a wealth of defensive uh, prospects at that point in time or defensive really stalwarts outside of Nick Cronwall. And so it was very easy to allow DeKaiser to really eat minutes. And I think you're going to see the same thing happen. Um, you know, this year you had, uh, without Danny DeKaiser in the lineup, you had Patrick Nemeth eating a lot of minutes and, and you had Philip Peronick eating a lot of minutes. And Max, you know, you had a good article earlier in the year talking about how over the season, you really did see the, that start to wear on Philip Peronic to a certain degree. And, and, and you have to wonder, you know, is he the guy that can really handle the 25, 26 minutes a night versus a guy like Moritz Sider, who has just, you know, excelled at every uh, facet over this last year. I thought from the beginning of the year in Grand Rapids to the end of the year, he immediately established himself as, as arguably Grand Rapids' best defenseman. Um, and it was just that rapid. And I think he's a guy that's showing that kind of, progression over his you know development right now and that's why I think by the end of the season he's going to be a guy that you're looking at going all right he's averaging 23 minutes a night playing uh you know on the top penalty kill and basically leading the team and even strength minutes on defense because I think the other thing we have to consider is look at all the vacancies for Detroit right now guys like Mike Green uh who eight minutes for the Red Wings um even on power play one guys like uh, you know, Jonathan Erickson are gone. Trevor Daly's gone. Potentially Madison Bowie is gone with the re-signing of Alex Biega. So there's a lot of minutes available, and I think Sider's just going to come in and eat them. 
what completely stunned me watching him this year, and you know, it's a high pick, right? So, so, and, and certainly the physicality would have to be high on that list as well. But I was just not prepared when I went to Grand Rapids the times that I went for certainly you saw him get exposed certain times where whether it was on like a I think there was a game I went to where they gave up a couple of shorthanded goals on his power play unit or something but um for the most part when the puck goes into the the Griffin's defensive zone and Moritz Sider's on the ice it comes out pretty darn quick and and that was a trend that I saw the whole year and if he can bring that in any you know any translatable measure with him to the NHL from the jump it's going to be really hard for the Red Wings not to give him as much minutes, as, as much workload as he can handle, because it might be the single worst thing about the Red Wings. And, you know, I, that might sound like hyperbole, but I I believe full-heartedly that the Red Wings' number one problem is when the puck goes into their end, it's about three times harder for them to get it out than it is for their opponents to get it out of, of their defensive zone. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. If you, you know, just breaking down the Red Wings on film... I think one of the things you saw was Detroit really struggled to exit the puck with control. Yes. Uh, you know, it was either they would force a play that didn't really result in anything, resulted in a turnover, uh, resulted in the puck in the back of their net, or it was high and off the glass and out of the zone, and you're looking at an icing or you're looking at the team, you know, really the opposition coming right back in. And so where I think Sider's really going to help is if you just watch him on tape, he is so patient with the puck, uh, and sometimes it, to a fault uh, where he could get rushed, and I think that's going to be the big thing watching him in the NHL is as the speed of the game intensifies with you know guys in the NHL forechecking and getting on the defenseman faster, is he going to feel that same uh, level of confidence? Is he going to be able to handle the pressure of those forecheckers? I think that's a big question, but my my gut is that, yeah, he's able to do that. And with patience and with that kind of puck control, you're going to see Detroit exit the zone with the puck a lot more. And ultimately, that's going to result in the wing spending less time in the defensive zone. And here's the other thing that gives me, you know, that would make me confident in saying, you know, he's he's going to be able to translate it, is one of the other strengths of his is he cannot be taken down on a hit that he's like aware is coming from everything I can gather. So if there's, if there's pressure on him, if there's an attacking forward coming that it's going to light him up and he's got to make a pass, uh, he'll make the pass and then he, he'll take the hit and he's probably not going down on the ice. How many times have we seen in, in just limited, you know, one year sample of, of Moritz Sider being in the Red Wing system, a player literally bounce off him trying to make a big hit? Yeah. I mean, he's built like an absolute bull. Uh, he honestly reminds me of, and I think I've made this comparison in, in earlier episodes, of a larger Vladimir Konstantinov. The guy was solid as a rock. Konstantinov was only 5'11", but he hit like a freight train, and he was built like a rock. And and I think Sider's kind of the same uh, same mold, except now you're talking about a guy who's 6'3", 6'4", and built like that. And so I really don't think you're, the, the physicality of the NHL game is going to catch him by surprise. And, and I think that's a, that's a big, that's been a big issue for guys like Dennis Chalowski, uh, with the physicality of those four checkers getting in on him and kind of rushing his decision making. I don't think you'll see the same issue for Moritz Sider. You're not going to surprise him with the physicality. And I also don't think you're going to surprise him with the speed. This is a guy who's played in the DEL. He's played in the AHL. He's only played in professional leagues. Um, I mean, he, he's been, He's been exposed to what the kind of high caliber, high quality uh, players. And so I think he's going to be able to transition just fine. I think a totally reasonable projection is having him 
you know, lead the team in ice time by the end of the year, playing 22, 23 minutes a night uh, on on power play, maybe getting a little bit of power play time behind Philip Peronik, and depending on how Dennis Stralowski shakes out, uh, playing the top penalty kill with either Patrick Nemeth or Danny DeKaiser. And I think it's not unreasonable to see him chip in maybe 18 to 20 points this year to, to give you a little bit of offense. Yeah, so where I would come on the projections on something like that is I, I'm not going to say he's going to lead the team in ice time, but I do think he finishes the year in the top, let's say, I mean, I'll say four safely. Uh, I could see three toward the end, but like not on an average, if that makes sense. Like like there will be games, I think, toward the end of the year um, where he's earned the trust to be in kind of that top three, uh, you know, workloads. But I think when, when you look at it at the end, I still think he's more like a fourth uh, most as, as a rookie, just say. I mean, down the line, yeah, he's going to lead this team in minutes many years into the future, I think. And then points, yeah, I think that's the right range. I think it's, you know... Somewhere between 15 and, and 20 uh, would be my my range as well. That is kind of the question before we let the hype train completely run away from the station here is, are the puck skills and the, the shot, I guess, in particular, are those going to allow him to generate enough offense to be a true number one defenseman? But I have kind of been sufficiently convinced that this is a first pair guy, even if he's not like the true number one drive the first pair guy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, you don't necessarily have to score to be a right. quote-unquote number one defenseman right. so long as you're driving play in the right direction for your team, which I think he's a guy that certainly can do that with his patience with the puck and his puck skills. Um, but he's not necessarily the most offensively inclined guy. Uh, I think he's a guy that you want to let him develop and grow, and I think Nick Cronwall uh, got to work with him obviously a lot this past year in uh, in Grand Rapids, and I think can, you would hope that kind of continues uh, moving forward. I think Cronwell is a guy who thought the game at a very high level. Uh, the Wings obviously have a you know wealth of resources that they can throw at Cider and and get him different guys to work with. I mean, obviously you know Yuri Fisher was an outstanding thinker of the game as well. He's in the Red Wings front front office. You can always call Nick Lidstrom and have him come over and do a little bit of stuff with him. So I think you're going to see his game emerge, and that's why I think. Ultimately, getting paired with a guy like Nemeth or or DeKaiser is the right move because it lets him kind of explore those offensive skills a little bit more. But that is the area of his game where where he does need to grow the most. And and if he can find that right balance between attacking and defending, uh, I think you're talking about a potentially uh, really solid number one defenseman for years to come. Yeah, and I did like your point from earlier too about about the benefits of of what it will what it will give to take some of the that burden off Philip Hironik, who I agree, I think he he will he will be better uh, when he does not have to shoulder twenty six. Sometimes it was up to twenty seven minutes a night. I don't think that's sustainable for him uh, for for Hironik. Um, I, I think when you when you look at him, I think he's a solid top four guy. Maybe even some days better, but but I think if you're asking him to play that many minutes, you're asking for uh, for him to wear down a little bit. <laughs> that's that's completely reasonable. There's very few guys who wouldn't wear down under that kind of workload. Yeah, particularly this early in his career. I mean, yep. we, ha- we have to remember this was his really his first full NHL season, and he's being asked to go 26, 27 minutes a night as as this team's number one defenseman when you've got Danny DeKaiser going down. So I think uh, a lot was put on his shoulders this year, more than he was really capable of, of handling, and, and that showed up by the end of the season, and it's not his own fault 
you know, like you said, Max, I agree that I think if you're putting Philip Ronick in, in the right spot, he's probably uh, in a on a Stanley Cup contending team. He's probably your number four defenseman, uh, potentially your number three defenseman. Uh, and so you kind of want to get him back into that role, and a guy like Moritz Sada can certainly do that if he if he's able to step into that top pair. Yeah, speaks to his toughness that he answered the bell, but but better for everybody if he doesn't have to. Let's move on to our uh, number two Red Wings prospect. I'm guessing we're going to be in agreement here, Joe Valeno. Yeah, yeah, I think Joe Valeno's the the guy because I think he's got a little bit more upside from an offensive standpoint um, when you're comparing him to the other Grand Rapids center down there, Michael Rasmussen. Uh, I think he has the potential to to kind of put his game together into a really solid two-way center. Uh, that being said, you know, I'm not confident that he starts the year, at least in the NHL. I think he'll certainly get a look next year, but I think Detroit may give him a run as, as the number one number uh, one center down in Grand Rapids. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that makes sense. I mean, he, he's earned kind of that... Um... That billing as the guy who can play in every role, and that's usually how you can, you know, rack up the most minutes is if you're playing first penalty kill, first power play, uh, and starting the game at even strength. That's usually going to add up. I, I don't see a reason that he wouldn't have that role next year. Dominic Turgeon's still obviously in the picture as kind of that AHL veteran who can, who can do some of those same things, but you're going to prefer Valeno's offense to Turgeon's. And, and I think by the end of the year, um, I think his defense was to the point where I, I think he's got a real good case as, as kind of the unquestioned number one for them entering the year. What does that look like statistically? Yeah, statistically, I think the key here will be how much offense can Valeno really find? You know, he really struggled at times in Grand Rapids to, to find the score sheet. I thought he found his groove a little bit, you know, towards the end of the season. But that being said, you know, he comes in under half a point per game, uh, which doesn't necessarily bode well for a guy that you're expecting to be a, an upper tier player playing in the top half of the lineup, which is kind of why I've revised a lot of my projections down to where I think he most solidly fits on a third line um, as, a, as a center in the NHL. But I think if you're looking for him, from a positive standpoint to, to take the next step, I think what you'd want to see is is a season where he comes in around, you know, 0. 0.7, uh, potentially even 0. 0.8 points per game. I think if you get him in that realm, that's a positive sign that he may be able to piece together the offensive component enough to play in the top six uh, at the NHL level. I think more likely you'll see him take the next step and end up somewhere between 0. 0.5 and 0. 0.55 points per game. Um, while controlling kind of multiple facets of the game, both the offense and defensive component there. And so, you know, like when, when we've talked about different comparisons, we've kind of talked about him being a, a more defensive-minded center that can kind of check you from the third line. Uh, and so I, I think that's what you'll end up seeing, but optimistically you'd like to see him in that 0.7 to 0.8 points per game range. Yeah, you know, when you look at one of the comparisons that uh, was given in that article that we did, where we went through, I think it, Michael Backlund, I think this was Craig Button's comp for him. Um, so he was drafted in 2007 at the end of the first round. So he went back and obviously played in Sweden in uh, 07 08. Then he had his 08 09, um, mostly in the WHL and in, um, in Sweden. And then, so his, his draft plus three, I guess you'd call it, was in the AHL. And that was 32 points in 54 games, uh, for Backlund. So that's about point six. Little bit of a difference because it was his first year in the AHL. But I think that puts, you know, right in line. So if, if you want to say, if you want Joe Valeno on the kind of that level track um i think 0.65 to 0.7 is what you'd be looking for 
um, just because you want, you know, to factor in kind of that boost for, for it being his kind of second season in the AHL. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's kind of the goal or what you're hoping for out of a guy like Joe Valeno is can he get to that Michael Backlund tier? Because if not, that's not to say he can't be an effective player, but sure. I think the other the other kind of ceiling from the ceiling to the floor, if you're kind of thinking about it, I think ideally you're hoping at a minimum he can be almost like a Chris Draper type player, a guy who's a really effective defensive forward for the Red Wings, was able to play on the third line on a Stanley Cup contending team, actually won himself a Selkie trophy. Now, I don't know that Valeno is necessarily as, as capable as, as Draper was back then, but he was also a guy that could chip in about, you know, at his best, you know, 40 points, but generally around that 30 point mark in the NHL. And so I think at a minimum, you're hoping you get that Chris Draper floor, um, in terms of that kind of two way game can play on the third line, has a lot of speed. Um, but that being said, you'd ideally hope he can revise that up a little bit towards maybe more of a Michael Backlund type player. Right, and then even, maybe even the slightly more ambitious uh, one in that vein, the, the comp, uh, stylistic comp, I should say, was the Philip Deneau. And, you know, looking back, Deneau's first AHL season was 26 points in 72 games. Valeno's this year was 23 and 54. So Deneau took a step forward the next year in 38 and 70. Um, so, you know, that's a nice bump, but I think like there's, there's some track record there to say that especially for these, uh, two-way defensive centers, or two-way, uh, two, sorry, two-way centers who are often going to be having to kind of, uh, focus on the defensive game when they're getting to the AHL. Maybe the production doesn't quite jump off the page a ton. And obviously there's a ton of variance whenever we're talking about AHL because team quality and kind of the focuses of different organizations with their AHL, uh, prospect management is, are going to come into play. But there's some track record to say that it, it's not necessarily a sign that someone isn't going to be an effective two-way player just because they didn't light up the score sheet a ton in their first year. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Even if you look at, a, you know, Draper now that I've put his name out there, uh, if you look at his first full season in the AHL as a 20-year-old, he puts up 29 points in 61 games, uh, which is relatively similar to what you saw yeah. from Valeno this year. And then the following season, he gets a little bit better. He gets slightly above that 0.5 point per game mark. And then his third season in the AHL as a 22-year-old, he's at a point-per-game point per pace. Game, yeah. And so now you're, you're thinking about that, and if you see that kind of progression from Valeno and, and you, again, see him rounding out both sides of the game, I think that's still a very good player and very much in line with what the Red Wings need right now. It, it kind of makes me think sometimes that for a franchise that's in the position the Red Wings are in, it, it makes a lot of sense for, for fans, for media types, for everyone to – like you kind of do this thing psychologically where you know that the Red Wings – need this player to be this role and so you track it so closely to see oh well can they be it and, and you check it so much it's almost like checking your 401k like every day you could drive yourself crazy wondering like if it's if it's going to deliver when you need it to right but in reality this is it's the kind of thing that builds up over time yeah i mean if you're if you're trying to watch game the game and you're looking for things you're 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 in too deep you've got to step out you've got to look year to year the off seasons are critical for these players uh, to be able to kind of build from from one step to the next. And again, at this point in their career, you're seeing huge gains from year to year uh, in terms of their overall strength, their production, their kind of training. So I think next season, whenever that does come around and we see that, 
that's what you're going to be looking for from Joe Valeno. Yeah, but I think he's going to have a really good year, and especially what we saw, you know, uh, the the last uh, six to eight weeks of the season. I guess it would have been um, really strong game from Valeno, especially after the World Juniors. So I, th- I think that's probably uh, one of the most encouraging things the Red Wings take into this. Is it the off season? Who knows? But you know, this this portion of the year is, is how good he had been, and uh, another reason why it is a shame that they lost their their crack at the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. All right, to number three, uh, are we agreed on Michael Rasmussen? Yeah, I think I think Rasmussen's the guy, and you know it's gonna it's kind of funny that we have him as two and three this way because I think with Rasmussen, given that he's already got that level of NHL experience, um, you know we really didn't get to see a lot of him this year in the AHL because of wrist and back injuries and, and, and things along those lines. Not I wrist mean, so, this year. Sorry, yeah, not wrist, yeah. but uh, back this year. Um, that being said, I think where you see him next year, starting in the NHL. Um, you know, depending on how the, again, how this season plays out, what ultimately comes of, uh, you know, the COVID-19 stuff, if, if these teams do get a complacency buyout, uh, if that's used on a guy like Franz Nielsen, if he's waived, if, if that's used on a Justin Applicator, either way, I think you see Rasmussen up in the NHL and I think you see him potentially centering, uh, that Red Wings third line. Um, you know, towards the end of the year, they were starting to move Nielsen out of that center spot. Um, onto the wing, even playing on Philpolo's wing at times. So I think there is a, an opening uh, for him, and I think that's honestly where he starts next season. And it'll be interesting to see. Uh, his rookie year, obviously right out of the draft, it was out of necessity because the Red Wings didn't necessarily want him you know, to go back to the WHL for another year, and he didn't have the opportunity to go to uh, you know, the AHL because of the NHL-CHL agreement. So he had to go through a really tough rookie year. And while he showed some flashes of being able to help on the power play, he was ultimately overmatched uh, by the speed and really the physicality of the game and was kept to the perimeter a lot. So I think I'll be most interested in see how he's able to use his size to get to the middle of the ice and get to the dangerous scoring areas. You know, you and I have always differed on this. I am far less optimistic on Rasmussen's talents, um, I think, than, than most Red Wings fans uh, and where I think he's more than likely a fourth line player with some third line upside. Uh, so I'm kind of thinking he lands himself in the maybe 25 to 28 point range next year with potentially 15 of those being goals and, and maybe six or seven on the power play. I think piecing them together. I just, I don't see him being an effective even strength player, at least not as early as next season. Yeah, to me, the NHL production thing depends on does he start in the NHL, and it's a real question. Uh, you know, I promise I'll stop bringing it up right after this, but I think he is the guy who is hurt the single most by not getting to finish the AHL season just because of how much time he missed and how kind of on the cusp he was, right? Like if, if, if you go into the playoffs and you're Rasmussen and you have a, let's call, I mean, dominant can be an overused word, but let's say he's like, 0.8 points per game in the playoffs, playing in key situations. I think that pretty much makes your case, right? Like by itself, it makes your case going into the next season that you're ready. Um, especially considering that he had missed some time and, and, and had started really good. Like that would have been a big opportunity and he doesn't get it, um, get that opportunity now. So he's a guy who, you know, whatever it looks like going into next season, um, he, th- those are probably the questions he has to answer is, uh, is, did he make enough strides in kind of limited action, uh, in the AHL this year? And I say limited, I think he, what he played 30 games. Yeah. He 35. played 35 games. 35. Yeah. 
So that's like it's a, it's a it's an okay amount, um, but you'd you'd have liked to see him play more. And he it was pretty productive. Point six points per game is really strong uh, for for a rookie in that league. So I could see him starting in the AHL. I think it's better for most people if he's if he's ready to start in the NHL. But I don't think they're going to rush him too much. And um, it's going to be interesting if he plays the full season though in the NHL. I think you're spot on with with the production. I think it's like 15 ish goals and then somewhere between 25 and 30 points. And and if he does that and and he can make uh, he can, he can kind of make progress in terms of what situations he can play in. I fully expect he's on uh, the power play, obviously. But can he play any penalty kill? All that stuff. Then you you know you, you chip away at kind of these these any layers of doubt that remain. To me, I, I do think he's a third line player uh but i think because of the ability at the net like maybe he gives you kind of a, a scoring impact that looks a little more like a second line player and that could mean you know 22 goals 40 points at some in some seasons at his peak but um, we'll see what it looks like and, and I, I certainly don't expect that as soon as next year number one because we don't even know if he's going to start in detroit next year yeah i think ultimately it comes down to what detroit decides to do with sam gagne uh, whether Detroit decides, uh, you know, to continue the Robbie Fabry experiment at center. I mean, he got some time, uh, at center last year. And so if that's the case, that may also impact how Detroit chooses to, to bring him up. But, uh, that being said, I think the majority of the season will ultimately be spent in the NHL next year. It'll just be interesting to see after he gets a full, basically a full season in the NHL. Goes to the AHL, doesn't really get the full season because of you know the back injury, and then now gets to come back and kind of put together what he's learned over the last you know year and a half. I think I'll be really interested to see because I think next the next season is really telling for how he's going to develop. Yeah, and to me, he's he's just a classic case of in evaluating him. Can people separate the draft position and, and the the asset used to select him? And the role that he plays in determining, you know, kind of how quote unquote valuable or whatever he is to the team. Because certainly with the ninth overall pick, you really want like a top six impact forward if you're taking a center, right? Obviously that's what you're looking for in that range. But isn't it still valuable? And obviously you want that guy to, to do a lot of that damage at even strength when it's really hard to do damage. But isn't it still valuable to have a guy who's really effective on the power play and who can make a difference um, defensively and, and on the penalty kill? I think that's still really valuable. So can you can people and can we as 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 media members and evaluators like can we separate that from the draft position? Yeah, that'll always be the challenge, and, and it's not being helped by the fact that, you know, Vel- you know Gabriel Velarde finally got to play right. his first NHL game, and, and, you know, Martin Hs and Nick Suzuki are literally the picks right after him. And and, he, and even Eric Brandstrom and, and Timothy Logren got to play in the NHL a little bit, Rob Thomas, Philip Hedl, you know, all of those guys going in the in the next 10 to 12 picks right after him is not helping people separate him from his draft position. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if you walk away with an NHL player who can be relatively, or I should say mildly productive in the NHL, you know, you, you'll still take it. Is it as good as it could have been? No. But is it still something that's that's helpful to the team? And I think the answer is still yes. Yeah, I just think it's important that we be able to give and accept different evaluations of what a player is and brings to a team and to a franchise and whether a player, you know, would go in the same place in a redraft. To me, they're just two different conversations, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't think you can judge the value of that player relative based on what was taken around him. 
Yeah, yeah. Unless you're talking about the draft, in which case, right. you know, we can <laughs> certainly do. But yeah, yes. they're, they're just different conversations. All right, uh, on to number four. Who, who you got at number four? So I've got Jonathan Berggren here at number four, but this is where I think the, you could make a lot of different cases for, for different players because, you know, as talented as Berggren is, as, as productive as he's been, you now start to have to wonder about this injury history. I mean, you know, in his draft, you know, after getting drafted, he has an awful back injury that keeps him out for a large part of the season. Now this year has an awful shoulder injury that keeps him out for a large part of the season. You know, when you watch him, he's very clearly a talented player. And again, playing in one of the top leagues in, in the world in the SHL over in Sweden and, and scoring quite well at a half point per game. Um, you know, the, the talent is very clearly there. I think the biggest question mark about Berggren is, one, can he stay healthy? And two, can he find a way to play less on the perimeter? And I think this is something, really the biggest gripe with with Berggren right now is, you know, over in Europe on the bigger ice, he seems to make a lot of his plays on the perimeter. And is he going to be able to, on the smaller North American ice where the defense has kind of collapsed in, is he going to be able to attack the middle of the ice, find those you know, dangerous scoring areas, uh, and, and be able to be an f- effective player? Or is it going to be a guy like Thomas Yurko that's not able to get to those areas and is ultimately highly skilled, but just not able to put it all together? So, you know, I have the most question marks about, about Berggren. That being said, I still think he sticks next year in the SHL. I don't know that Detroit brings him over to the AHL next year. Um, but I think this is where, uh, it's very tricky and a very difficult decision for Detroit to make because, you know, they could move him over to the AHL and, and see what he's got. Um, and if he looks good, potentially even give him a few uh, a short run in Detroit. Yeah, I, I personally would not bring him over quite yet, especially with, with the injuries. I think you give one more year over there and – and see how it goes, but you know, and and I'm I'm with you with Berggren at four, but but it's a lot more tepid than I was when I ranked him at, at midseason, um, in the same spot. Obviously, I think it was five at the time because Philip Sedino was still counted as a prospect, which I no longer I, we're not counting him as a prospect anymore. Um, so you know, it's just less confidence. But the thing is, there's not a lot of like sure things kind of behind him either. So at that point, you feel fine ranking someone on, on talent and upside, right? Like the next guys, I guess, would probably be in some order, McIsaac, Tuomisto, Master Simone, and there's still question marks with those guys too. Some of them injury. McIsaac's got some injury question too. He, he had a big injury. So, um, yeah, I'm still good with Berger in, in that spot, but I agree with you that, that you know, the, the durability and kind of the evolution of the game are the questions, um, but he is one of the few guys in the system that you look at and you say, if he manages to stay healthy, if he manages to take the right steps, I think it's a top six player. Yeah, and I think that's the big key for the Red Wings right now because everyone's really talking about, and, you know, you brought this up in your fan survey that you did for the Red Wings uh, you know, when's this rebuild really going to be over? And, and what are the things that could speed this up? Well, one of the things that's going to speed this up is if Detroit knocks it out of the park on players that were picked in later rounds of the draft. Uh, so Bergen, while not a late round draft pick, he's a second round draft pick. He's a guy that if he's able to outperform what the, what you usually get out of that pick, uh, that's where you start to, turn these rebuilds around very fast. It's when you get Braden Point in the third round. It's when you get, you know, players like that from those later round picks and they vastly outperform what you had expected for them. That's how you accelerate the rebuild. And Bergen was a guy that, you know, we all had pegged 
to be that player, a guy who could vastly outperform, you know, the 33rd or 36th, I can't remember off the top of my head which one he was, I believe 33rd pick in the draft. You know, he was a guy that could produce maybe in the top 10 to top 15 players in his draft class. Uh, but it, the main question right now is, is, is he going to be able to stay healthy? I don't know. I, I, and that's where I think he's got to stay in the SHL. You give him a little bit more time and then bring him over the following year uh, to North America and let him get adjusted. Yeah, he's, he's he, you know, in his draft year, too, like he's got a couple things that I think, uh, you know, it, it, it's really easy to, to like and really easy to sell yourself on. Number one, um, he was really young for his draft class and he's a really smart player. And those are two things that I think can make a, someone who might go kind of in like the second, third round range, make him able to rise. Certainly he more than doubled his per game production in the SHL this year. It was just durability. And certainly when one of the things that he's going to have to do uh, just progressing in his game to get better is, is go, you know, be less of a perimeter player, go more toward the net and all that stuff. And you combine that with the thing that durability has been an issue. That's kind of where the concern would come in. Um, so yeah, I, I think you want to see him back in the SHL and I think you want to see him, I don't know. Is it is it too much to ask to say 0. .7, 0.75 points a game in that league and, and play a full season? Yeah, I think that's right about where you want to see him. More than anything, I think playing the full season is the most yeah. important thing right now. Uh, you just want to make sure he can stay healthy and get through an entire season, you know, unscathed. Yep, yep. I think that's good. All right, this is where we may diverge. I think I might be. I mean, it, it, this, there's, there's risk to saying this, but I, I might be ready to talk myself into Antti Tuomisto as number five here. Yeah, I think you certainly could. I mean, Tuomisto had a great year in, in Finland. I think for me, I, uh, I lean still Jared McIsaac. I think I'm most comfortable in what McIsaac can be. Yeah. Uh, which again, you know, it's, it's not anything outstanding. He's not stepping in and being a first line defenseman. Uh, I think what this guy is likely for you is a, a number four, number five type defenseman, a very steady defense first def- player that's going to be able to give you maybe a little bit of offense, but more than anything, play a physical game on the back end. A guy like Brad Stewart is a, is a great comparable here as well for Red Wings fans who remember him. Um, you know, a guy who was capable but played more of that physical game. But, you know, like you said, Max, I think McIsaac has his injury questions as well, you know, with the shoulder injury. Um, and, you know, he didn't necessarily look great after coming back from that. Didn't have a great start at the World Juniors. Um, and then after, uh, you know, the QMJHL season got going, he gets traded from Halifax to Moncton and, and played better over there, but ultimately not as impressive as, as the year prior. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of question marks there. So I think you could very easily go for Antti Tuomisto, who had a great year in the, in the Junior Finish League. Well, let's, let's do McIsaac then, because I think that is certainly, you know, he's, he's got more of the kind of the, the track record, and if not for the injury, maybe he is already kind of pulling away, because, you know, he, the year that he had um, a, a year ago in the QMJHL, where, you know, he was, I think he was well over a point a game with Halifax, and, and the fact that he's not known as like a pure offensive defenseman made that stand out, um, you know, that really kind of was a, a, a wow kind of factor season. This year, it's not quite that. He gets traded to Moncton, spends the whole first half of the year recovering from uh, shoulder surgery, uh, comes back for the World Juniors, and then he gets traded to Moncton. And so he kind of spends a lot of that time. I believe it was the first time he ever lived away from home for hockey because he's from 
Truro, which is kind of right outside Halifax. Uh, so that to me is interesting, kind of that combination. He, he did dip down in his production, but it was a small sample with a lot of mitigating factors. Did this season introduce any concerns about McIsaac's game to you other than kind of the health? Not really. I mean, all it really did for me is it kind of revised the ceiling for him. You know, after last season in 2018, 2019, when a guy has just an absolutely outstanding year, you know, some people start talking, okay, is this maybe a first pairing defenseman, uh, a guy who can be a good number two for you? I think what this season did a little bit was it, it kind of let me revise that ceiling back down to no. I think comfortably this is a number four, number five type defenseman with a defense first mindset maybe the upside is is a solid upper tier number four but you know more comfortably I'm going to say this is a four or five guy and and honestly at this point again you just want to see him rehab that shoulder you know look good and then be able to take his game now out of the junior leagues to the AHL next year yeah I think that's fair and you know I, I think the fact that um I think the fact that you know he, he's probably going to have to do what all players going up to the AHL do and, and learn, you know, how much harder it is, how much more you have to be conscious of um, your your ability to not get burned. Like that, that's an adjustment everyone has to make. And and obviously, McIsaac can do a lot with the, you know, he's he's got a good shot and he's a smart off, you know, offensive player as well. And so I think you know he'll still make some offensive impact. But this might be a guy, a candidate for kind of the. Valeno syndrome where the statistical numbers don't match um, kind of even if he does have a good season it might not show up that way in the box score if that makes sense yeah I think that's very fair I don't think he's a guy that you're going to see show up in the box score a whole lot uh, I think you know you'll know he's having a good game simply by you're just going to have to watch him and, and, and see because he's not going to really fill the, the stat sheet with points, goals, assists, things like that. You may see him from hits and you may see him from penalty minutes, but uh, not likely to be in any of the other areas commonly. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, the physicality is a selling point, you know, the willingness to kind of block shots, all that stuff. Like he'll play tough matchups and and those are all good things. So, you know, I don't think you're looking at this as kind of your your high-end power play one quarterback player and that may be something that considering the production in his draft plus one year, maybe kind of a mental adjustment that uh, fans need to make on McIsaac. For sure. But I think swinging, you know, to another defenseman who, you know, again, maybe on the flip side, instead of being that physical defense first defenseman, you're talking about a guy in Antituamisto who is very much a, almost like a gazelle on skates a little bit. Yeah, the, the offense is, is is the key there with him, and it's a big shot is kind of the big selling point for Tuomisto. And, you know, we didn't get to watch him at all this year because he's in the Finnish Junior Leagues, and he wasn't at the World Juniors. So, like, we're seeing these gaudy totals, and you kind of hear opinions about, you know, how, how great a season he had, and it all happens, and we're not really able to watch it. So that's the reason that I was a little cautious in saying that I might be ready to put him at five. Because I haven't seen like the progress really with my own eyes other than scattered Twitter highlights, you know? So so that's kind of the, the tough part in this is that by all accounts, this was an awesome season. I believe he was the MVP of the Finnish Junior League. But of course he was. He was a second round pick back in the Finnish Junior League who, you know, was was going to college and so he didn't go to the men's league where arguably I think I don't even know if it's arguable. He probably belonged there, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean I, I think that's what's made to Amisto the hardest to project prospect right now for yeah. the Red Wings because you get a lot of people that go over uh, to, you know, to elite prospects and you look at it and yeah, his point total 
uh, as a defenseman, second highest point total in the Finnish Junior League history. Uh, when you look at it, it's only right behind Essa Lindell, who is an NHL or is a top, you know, pairing defenseman for the Dallas Stars. And you're going, yeah, that looks really great. But the key here is this was his draft plus one year. And this was, you know, these guys don't routinely play in the Finnish Junior League. They usually play in Liga or they move on somewhere else, depending on their development path. They don't typically stay in that league. Now, Tuomisto had to stay in that league to maintain his NCAA eligibility. And so, you know, because of that, he wanting to go through that NCAA pathway, he had to stay in a league that was frankly beneath him. Now, again, great to see that he still produced at a very high level, but I think it makes him that much harder to project. You didn't get to see him take the next step in Liga. You saw him basically play at a level that was beneath him. So now, next year, the NCAA is going to be a step up for him. Uh, it's going to be a different game, North American ice, and we're going to see how he looks next year. And I think that will really be the telling year in terms of how uh, you know, how you can project him moving forward because as of right now, I don't have a good read on what he's going to be because we didn't really see him in an ideal situation. My guess, and again, like I've said, I have not watched a full game this kid has played since he – was he at the World Junior Showcase? I don't think he was. You're talking – no, no, he wasn't at the um, – Thing in Plymouth. Well, yeah. No, yeah. Okay, so I I haven't seen him since development camp. Uh, live or, or a full game or anything like that. So this is a guess, but my guess is you're going to be happy, uh, if by like November you're hearing anything other than, yeah, he, he's still kind of adjusting to, to what it looks like, uh, in U.S. college. Cause I do expect it's going to be a big jump up in play from Finnish Junior to, you know, Denver's one of the top programs in, in college hockey in the country. It's going to be a challenge. I fully expect it to. And if you're hearing anything other than he's getting adjusted, if you're hearing, wow, you know, really impressed with with how quick he's getting adjusted, or really impressed with how well he's picked up on the the, the pace of the game, or, or processing all that stuff, those are the good signs. And by the end of the year, I think you're probably going to start hearing some of that those complimentary um, superlatives more. But I'm I'm guessing that the the jump in skill level is going to kind of dominate the narrative around him next year, um, and and so maybe it's another situation where people are going to get really excited this summer because of the offensive numbers, and then early in the year, you know maybe it kind of is 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 not there right away. But but I do think you know it's a long term project because there's a lot of really good tools there with Tuomisto. Yeah, I completely agree. He's got a lot of the pieces. It's just can that game get refined and harnessed into a kind of a dynamic offensive defenseman. Right. And, and you know, so it's going to require patience. And on his part, it's going to require a lot of work. He's going to have to fill out. He's going to have to put the time into, to, I'm sure, watching film and into just the mental energy of getting ready to, to get up to speed with, with what's going to be a big jump. But, you know, the toolkit's there, and that's something that I think it's okay to, to dream on a little bit. I mean, if this is a guy who, you know, you kind of got you kind of got to think you have your – top two pairs on the right side for the future short up with, with Heronic and Cider. But I, I think Tuomisto seems to be a guy that maybe you can, you can hope would, would have like a number four ability at some point. Is that fair? Yeah. I think, you know, again, like I said, it's so difficult to project him, but I mean, if you get a guy who could be a number three or a number four in Tuomisto, which again, we just don't know at this point in time. Um, you know, I think that's an outstanding get for the Red Wings again in the second round. So you know, we'll see, but potentially you're talking about being able to round out your your top four with Moritz Sider, Philip Ronick, uh, Antti Tuomisto, and, and Jeremy McIsaac, and maybe that's it. 
Um, and, and we haven't even gotten to another, you know, defenseman in Albert Johansson who's made kind of great strides as well. So we'll see. Obviously not everyone's going to pan out the way we think, but, uh, he's a guy where I think you just need to see another season of him in a league that's going to challenge him. But I think if you're Detroit, you're almost hoping that your third pair when you're ready to contend can be McIsaac and Tuomisto, two guys who, in theory, maybe by that point, they're they're playing like guys who could play on the average team second pair. Like I think that's the goal when you're a contender is to have your bottom lineup guys be more like middle lineup guys. That's exactly it. I mean, you're hoping to have guys that on other teams would be well in, well above their heads, just like the Red Wings have been for most of this year. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break right there to talk about the Black Tux. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suitor tuxedo for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible. Unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suitor tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with code WINGS. That's theblacktux.com, code WINGS, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. All right, let's get back into it at number seven. Uh, this one's easier enough for me, Robert Mastro Simone. Yeah, I think he's uh, he's got to be the next guy there, and, and simple enough for Red Wings fans. It's it's pretty obvious where he's going to be next year. He was at Boston University this year for his freshman year, had a relatively solid season, and he'll be at Boston University next year for his sophomore year. And again, you know, you're hoping that he takes the next step uh, in terms of becoming a little bit more of a leader on that team. Yeah, and obviously, you know, that is a team that should is Tra- Zegers turn pro. Uh, I believe he has not yet. So I believe he, he still could, but I think at this point in time, I don't know that he signed his entry level contract. Okay. So, you know, that is a team where, oh yeah, they, they, he did sign. He signed. He did. Uh, okay. So, we'll see. okay. Right, so so Zegers will be gone. Uh, but they'll still have Ethan Phillips there. They, they've got, uh, you know, David Ferentz, I believe is back. He's a Nashville prospect on defense. That team should, I think, be pretty interesting, and certainly for Red Wings fans it will be with all the prospects they have there. So I expect Master Simone to take a decent jump forward. I think he'll have a, a nice role on that team. This year I think he was, what, right around half a point per game as a freshman? Yeah, I mean, he had a really solid season for a freshman. I mean, he was at exactly half a point per game with 17 points and 34 games played, and, you know, he got to play on a line uh, for part of the year with his, uh, you know, draft mate in Ethan Phillips. So... You know, again, with, with Zegers not being there, you would expect that, you know, Master Simone shoulders to more of that burden um, for Boston University moving forward. Yeah, and I will bet money that the Red Wings development staff, if, if you ask them about Robert Mastermoni and what they, Robert Mastermoni and what they expect from him, the first thing they're going to say is they expect and want him to have a big summer in the gym because he's 5'10", I think 
Elite Prospects has him at 170. Um, I don't know, you know, where that falls on how updated that is, all that stuff, but I'm sure they're going to want him to bulk up. And once he does, he's the guy who I think could be a candidate to take a little bit of a step forward. Um, I, I think you, you, you want to see him probably at like 0.75 to 0.8 points a game. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think somewhere in that range again would be again indicative that the Red Wings may have a top six or top nine player, uh, you know, on their hands. And so again, that's the natural next step. He's going to get the opportunity that he may not have gotten this year with Zegris and, uh, you know, a couple other players really blocking his way. But next year he should really factor in as a prominent player for, uh, for Boston University. Yeah. And I, you know, because he is on the slighter size, slighter side, I don't think you need to worry a ton about the production not being kind of as strong as some other uh, players kind of in that mold in, in their kind of first years of college. Like I think about JT Comfer, he, he, I think he was about a point per game, um, which was my freshman year at Michigan was, was, was his as well, I believe. Um, he was about a point per game and I, I think JT was just a bigger, more physically developed player at that time. And so I don't think you need to worry a ton about that, but I do think you want him to make that progress now as he gets more time to bulk up and who knows how this, uh, the way that this spring is taking place, how that will affect him ultimately. But I think if he's able to, to kind of get up to speed a little bit physically, up, not up to speed, up to size physically, um, that will help him quite a bit. Yeah, completely agree. And, you know, just taking a look at, you know, Boston University, Master Simone quietly was, you know, one of the biggest, uh, you know, shooters or drivers yes. of offense for them. Um, you know, on that team, he took the second most shots behind just David Ferentz. He actually took about eight and a half percent of, uh, you know, Boston University's uh, total shot attempts. And so he's a guy where, again, you give him more ice time and you let him keep shooting the puck. You know, you may see a lot more goals come his way. Yeah, is there a, is there a way to track kind of average shots per game? I feel like uh... I don't know that there's um, any way that tracks average shots per game. But if you're looking for NCAA statistics, Nyan Patel uh, is a guy who actually tracks a lot of the shot attempts. Yeah, and so he actually tracks percentage of shot attempts taken by an individual player and and things of that nature. And so you know, Master Simone was second on that team behind. Uh, only David Ferentz. And so there, you can check out, you know, Nayan Patel's uh, Tableau site, uh, to see a little bit more of that data. And that's significant. And didn't he have a, didn't he have their big goal too in the, in the bean pot? Master yeah, he, yeah, he did. He had the uh, big, I want to say it was the game winning goal. Yeah. So it was a game winning or game tying, but yeah, clutch, clutch goal in, in the bean pot. And I think that's kind of the player that he'll end up being is he can get lost and then appear and score a big goal. So, uh, I, I like Master Simone. I think he, I think he's probably kind of your your middle six versatile winger type, but one that'll play uh, an important role. And and we'll see. We'll see what kind of steps he takes forward. Um, this is a year that I think Red Wings fans should want him to make a pretty big leap. Yep, completely agree. All right, uh, moving on from there. Is it Albert Johansson time? Yeah, I think it's it's a perfect time to talk about Johansson again. Uh, another defenseman for the Red Wings, and and Johansson made great strides this season. Uh, you know, he was a favorite of yours, Max. I know um, with how well he was kind of closing the season in the SHL, and he's quietly flown under the radar. But he's a guy that I think can really surprise. Yeah, and this is a guy who I think 
not a whole lot was known about him when the Red Wings first drafted him. I mean, he has kind of a famous father, Roger Johansson, who, who played in the league. And uh, but I remember like the, the the big takeaways that I had coming out of the draft were Hawken Anderson quote saying that someone commented to him that Johansson could be the best of all of them when it was done, uh, and the fact that he said he kind of reminded him like Heronic without the without as good of a shot. Uh, and obviously Johansson being a better skater than than Philip Heronic, I think that is his kind of like selling trait at this point. He had a really strong close to the season though. You're you're dead on, and so I think when you look at one of the kind of breakthrough prospects of this year, um, you know, throughout the league, it was Nils Lundqvist who broke through after having a pretty similar season to what Albert Johansson did um, in his draft one plus year. Um, your draft plus one year. I don't know if it's fair to expect that, but I think you're looking to see, boy, you're looking for him to like double his production. Is that about right? Yeah, I think if you're looking for him to really take the next step, you're you're hoping for somewhere in the you know half a point to to even point six points per game, uh, which is asking a lot from a defenseman. But if uh, if he's really able to take that next step and get into that kind of territory, you're talking about a guy who uh, could be a, a legitimate you know top four defenseman. And he's one that I don't mind basing a lot of it on point production with because I think he does project as your offensive defenseman. I'm sure, you know, the, the, I'm sure it's not just that, but he's a guy who you're going to want him to play that role. And so I think it's fair to kind of use, uh, points as, as a, as a predominant, um, evaluating metric. Yeah, completely agree. All right. Beyond that, um, are we, I mean, are we going to talk about Evgeny Svechnikov in this conversation or is he kind of in a different category? I think for me, he's in a different category. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily term him a prospect, uh, even though, you know, he technically is by the standard that he's still not in the NHL as a regular. Um, that being said, I think he falls in a different bucket of players for me that one where he should just get a shot to start, you know, out of the gate. So kind of the guys that I have really left on my list is where, you know, you can either take your pick of Keith Petruzzelli, Elmer Soderblom, or, uh, or Alvin Greva. Interesting. I was going to say Gustav Berglund, Ethan Phillips, and Chase Pearson. That's fair. So we have a very different bucket, and I think this is where the, the prospect pool really diverges yeah. You know, for the Red Wings. I think for me, Petruzzelli is is a guy that hasn't really gotten I know you love your goalies. About. You know, I love my goalies. I, I love drafting my goalies. But Petruzzelli was a guy where you took him, you know, in, in the right area. You know, the Wings got arguably the second-best goalie in that draft with him, and it took him late in the third round. Um, and, you know, after having a rough sophomore year, he's really bounced back. So I think next year you could either see him potentially push Philip Larson in the AHL, but I think more likely you'll see him get the start in the ECHL in Toledo uh, and potentially work his way up to the AHL. Yeah, I want to see if he signs first, but yeah, I would agree that that's kind of the the difference, and especially after seeing that it, it was not so immediate and automatic for Larson turning pro this year, uh, I think it makes sense to if, if he does turn pro to expect more ECHL uh, workload than than AHL right off the hop for for Petrozelli. Um, how about we compromise here? We'll take one of those guys out of your bucket and one of the ones out of mine. All right, so who you want to take out of yours then, Berglund? Um, I was going to say Pearson, but we can go Berglund. Well, we have to talk about Chase Pearson, Max. It's, it's, it's in my in contract. Your, so. It's in your contract, so let's <laughs> let's get it out of the way. So Chase Pearson. Yeah, I mean, Chase Pearson is a guy who I expect to I, – I thought he was one of the guys who came along as the year went on as well. Uh, so I'm going to say that Pearson, yeah, starts in the NHL, but I think he's a guy who you'll see in the NHL. That should be the expectation to play some games in the NHL by year's end. 
Yeah, I think that that makes perfect sense. And a lot of what happens with him is going to depend on what the Red Wings choose to do with some of their restricted yes. free agents. Uh, you know, is Christopher N going to be back? You know, he's 24 years old, doesn't really off. You, you know what you've got in him, and it's arguably a replacement level player. Um, is it time to give a guy like Chase Pearson a shot so you know what to do uh, before Chase Pearson's contract is up at the end of next season? And I think the answer to that is probably yes, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I, I think he's a guy who you want to bring up in a, in a call-up scenario where it's not just one game. Maybe he's going to get a week or two and you just see what it looks like at the NHL level and maybe he, he proves that he can stick around for a while because I do think, you know, he, he does have that profile as the down lineup kind of fourth line center type, but you saw enough flashes of offense. And I think people who watch games in Grand Rapids this year, uh, listening out there will probably agree with this is as the year went on, you saw more, oh, hey, that was a nice move. Oh, that's a good shot. And, and, and as that happens, that's when you start to think, okay, maybe he could carve out an NHL role. I don't think this is a guy who's going to play, you know, 15 years in the NHL, but I think this, you know, as you move on uh, down the line where you, you talk about wanting to have kind of this never-ending cycle of, of ELC and kind of $1 to $2 million bottom of the lineup, reliable defensive with some offensive touch players, I think he's he's somewhere in that cycle. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And he's a guy, if you can squeeze three, three, four years out of and in the bottom of your lineup as a high energy guy, that's great. Yep. All right. Now you get your pick out of your bucket. All right. Well, then I think we can't end this without talking about Elmer Soderblom and really the guy who took the, the largest step of, of any Red Wings prospect, I think, this year. I mean, he absolutely lit up uh, the Swedish Junior League, the Super Elite League, and actually worked his way all the way up to the SHL. Uh, you know, the top men's league at someone of his age and ultimately didn't get a lot of playing time and then ended up moving back to all Svenskin, which is kind of the middle tier league there. He's a guy where I expect him to get a run in the SHL. And, uh, you know, if he scores in that 0.4 points per game range, which I think would be very, very um, optimistic. So yeah, probably good. somewhere in the 0.2 to 0.25 range is where I'm thinking he lands. Uh, but if he scores in that higher end, now you're potentially talking about a guy you, you need to advance quickly because he's looking uh, to be a really, really good player. And I think what a lot of people didn't really factor in is, yes, the guy is gigantic. He's six foot seven, um, but he moves so well and he's got great hands. And, and he's not necessarily a guy that wants to attack the net, but he can get there and, and he has the capacity to play at a high skill level. And so... You know, if he's a big guy with skill and he continues to play well, you're going to have to advance him up. Yeah, this is a guy who's still 18 years old as we're talking, and we're, you know we're almost two years from his, or almost a year from his from his draft day where he was 17 on draft day. So uh, I'm interested too in what it looks like. He played some SHL games this year. He's with Frolundus. I don't think he's loaned for next year. Is that is that is that? I, yeah, I believe the case is he's he'll be back with Frolunda. Okay, because the, there was the loan at some point to the Allsvenskan at one point uh, this year, but I think I think that's done now. So uh, yeah, I mean I, I agree with you. If, he, if he's anything above like point two, point two five points per game uh, in an organization like Forlunda, now you're talking about this as like a prospect who we're not debating whether he's on a list like this. Yep. Yep, I completely agree. Yeah, and I still don't think we're we're ever going to talk about like kind of like top six Elmer Soderblom, but but I think you know that's when you, when he gets into that conversation as a guy who when do you bring him over that that kind of talk. Yep. All right. Anything else on on this subject before we we move on? I know that was kind of uh, a little bit dense at some points, but I really enjoyed kind of that. I think that's a good thing to do periodically and just kind of refresh what's reasonable to think guys are going to do in the next year and and kind of refresh who who you're talking about as the top of the farm system. 
Yeah, it's an important exercise because it also helps you figure out where guys should play and kind of where they're going to fit in and kind of what the holes are in the system and, and kind of guides your, your draft day strategy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, then let's go to the questions. Um, not too many today, so make sure you guys are, are uh, giving us questions. This one is from uh, Life is Pain 2013, and he says uh, – Fun mock draft last episode, and he'd be excited for the haul for the Red Wings, but curious about how we would feel if the Red Wings took three wingers with their top picks and what that would do to the rebuild. Obviously, you want to do best player available, but how consequential could that be for future roster construction? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and you know, for those of you that, that had the chance to listen into the last episode, so obviously the Red Wings, um, you know, in this mock draft that we did with Brad Crisco of the Wing Wheel Podcast uh, running the show, you know, the Red Wings came away with a lot of forwards out of that. They came away with, you know, Alexi Lafreniere. They came away with Ridley Gregg. They came away uh, with Lucas Reichel. And so now you're talking about, you know, three wingers. Um, and and is that a problem? To me, it's not a problem because there is very little certainty in prospect evaluation, um, particularly once you get beyond the first five picks or so. Uh, do we know what Alexi Lafreniere is going to be? Yeah, we do. We know he's going to be an NHL player. We know he's going to be a really good one. After that, who's to say what Lucas Reichel is going to be? Who's to say what really Greg's going to be? You know, at this time, we think that Reichel could be quite good, and we think that Greg could be good as well. But there's no certainty to that. And so trying to draft by position without having any amount of certainty in whether or not that player is actually going to ever be successful is ultimately going to put you in bigger problems. Uh, you can always draft the best player available and then deal from a position of strength. Look at how Nashville has done it, where they've had so many great defensemen uh, that they've drafted over the years that they've been able to, you know, move guys like Sam Girard to bring Matt Duchesne to town. They've been able, you know, to do things really well. Um, you know, Carolina was able to deal Noah Hannafin uh, in a deal because they had so many defensemen in, in Jake Bean and Hayden Flurry and. And those guys that they've drafted over there that they were able to then move Hannafin to get Dougie Hamilton. So I'd rather be in the position of having too much of a good thing than not enough of anything because I tried to guess what was going to be there. Yeah, and I'm kind of a a believer in using position as more of a tiebreaker than anything where – if you're drafting at you know number four and, and you have a, a center, a winger, and a, def- and a um, defenseman that you like all equally, then maybe you're saying, okay, my system needs another center at that position uh, who's going to really be a game breaker. I, I'm fine with kind of that approach if you really think um, that they're equal. But what I think is, is there's probably fewer situations where that is true the higher you go in the draft. If, if you're talking about the fifth, sixth, seventh rounds, I think it's entirely plausible that you have guys who you think basically the same about and then you can maybe think a little bit more about you know what kind of uh what kind of position they play but you know that was a a mock draft for the top two rounds my guess is there's not going to be like a ton of guys who you don't have any inclination one way or the other on and at that point just get the guys who are going to make you the best hockey team because i promise there's at any given point there's like you know 23 guys on an nhl roster and if you really feel like you have too many then it's a good problem to have that's exactly right. And at that point, you can deal from a position of strength and use it to fill out other areas of need. Yep, for sure. All right, uh, Eamon O'Flynn uh, asks, uh, well, this is very much along the lines of our earlier exercise. Uh, assuming next season's played, what kind of production is fair to expect from Philip Zadina? He was on a 24-ish goal pace over last season if he had played 82 games, but spent a bunch of his early games with, uh, you know, in, in kind of limited minutes uh, with, you know, in a dial lineup role. So what, have we talked about this? What's fair to expect from Zadina? 
Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit a, a couple episodes ago. I think it all ultimately is going to depend on who his line mates are. I think Bertuzzi, Lark, and Mantha is going to be the, the starting line, that top line going yep. into the season. And so, you know, it remains to be seen who's going to be that second line center. We don't know. Is it going to be Sam Gagne? Is it going to be somebody else? Uh, we don't know who the Red Wings are going to draft. Uh, so if it is Alexi Lafreniere, he's going to be in the NHL. Um, is he that second line winger that gets to play there? Is Robbie Fabry back? Who's to say? Um, that being said, I think a, a 20 to 25 goal with a 45 to 50 point season is kind of where I think Philip Zadina lands. I agree completely. And I th- actually think if he exceeds that, then you're starting to talk about, you know, Zadina back in the, in the kind of the first month after his draft level of, 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 of expectations again, because that's a really good season for a player that young to have. And I, I think it's fair to expect 20 plus goals. But if he's like, if you're, if you're talking about a guy who scores like 27, 28 goals, all of a sudden you're wondering like, oh my gosh, this guy could do 35 or 40 again. Yeah. And again, you know, what I said a couple episodes back was you're kind of hoping uh, that this season looks a little bit better than what Andrei Svechnikov's first season looked like, uh, which was, again, about a 20-goal, 40-point season. You're hoping for something that's slightly better than that. Uh, and, again, trying to showcase that he can really take those next steps. Yeah, like I think about Anthony Mantha's, uh, I guess you'd call it his first full season, was kind of this, it was 60 games, 17 goals, 19 assists, so 36 points in 60 games. If you extrapolate that out over... Um, a full 82 that's uh, about 48 points so that's in if, if you're in line with Anthony Mantha's first full season and can kind of be on that trajectory I think that would be very promising for Philip Zadina yeah I mean and again if you're getting that out of Zadina then you're talking about a team that's in a much better spot than this season yep so I don't want to uh, you know pump tires and say 40 goals too lightly like I, I don't mean that as like a that I think is like very likely. I just mean if he's if he's blowing past that twenty to twenty five, then I actually think there's there's reason to, for Red Wings fans to be pretty excited. Yeah, I mean, I think how could you not be at that point? Yeah. All right. Uh, Shana wants to know for our ranking of the most drink worthy Red Wings games this season for both good, bad, and oh my gosh performances. So I will give you one pick in each of those three categories, and then I'll give a pick in each of those three categories. Good, bad, and oh my gosh. You know, funnily enough, the good is the easiest one to do here. Uh, the good is obviously the, the comeback win against Montreal late in the third period. You're down 3-1. You come back. You score three goals. Uh, and that completes the season sweep of the Montreal Canadiens. I think, without a doubt, that was by far the, the, the most fun hockey game of the season for me. Um, you know, I think that was... Uh, probably the high point for the Red Wings, uh, to be quite honest. I don't think you could have gotten... Uh, anything better than that I think uh, the bad uh, there's just so many to pick from I think the one that I probably thought was the worst game the Red Wings played was probably the the just the November game against the Maple Leafs where Jimmy Howard gets hurt and then you know Jonathan Bernier's sick and and I mean that game the Wings honestly should have given up like nine or ten but Bernier just was Unbelievable. I mean, there's plenty of contenders. I mean, the Islanders game that you and I actually called the final score almost. We said it'd be 8-1 and it was 8-2. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's one, you know, the Minnesota one whooping them 7-1. Uh, you know, I think that's certainly there as well. But for me, I think it's the, the Maple Leafs game. It is definitely the Maple Leafs game. I'm, I'm, uh, I wanted to pick that one. That was the day before Thanksgiving. 
So that was a bunch of my friends who had moved out of state had come, you know, obviously home and they were out at the bars. That was the only game this season that I re- – not the only, but the, the the primary game this season where I was like, oh, man, I don't know what I'm going to get out of being here. Because it's the day before Thanksgiving. I don't think I had a story coming out the next day or anything that I really needed uh, out of the locker room. And I was like, oh, this is going to be an experience going in there and, and seeing how – and they were miserable. Like they, they were – that was as as bummed a group as I saw the entire season, I think. That was a, a rough one. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think the good drink game, you could go one of two ways for me. Either the Dallas game, the home opener with the Manta four-goal game, because there, there was a whole lot of kind of party vibe uh, to that one just uh, as it was. And then I think that you could say the same about the uh, – Robbie Fabry debut of the um, against Boston where they won and he scored two goals. I think that was it was a Friday night and people really excited. The new player comes in and he scores two goals. I would say those would be the two candidates I could give for for the good game. And then uh, among the bad, boy, there's just so many to pick from. I know the Minnesota one was pretty stark. I think that one felt over like really early. What about the New York one? Honestly, the New York one, the night that they traded for Fabry, was a really bad game. Oh, the game against the Rangers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a 5-1 loss. They got absolutely clobbered in that game. They did um, get a lot of shots, though. Lindquist made 35 saves. Yeah, and, you know, surprisingly, by the uh, you know by shot attempt metrics, they actually came out at about 59%. <laughs> but a large part of the reason for that was because they were down 3 to nothing you right. know, midway through the second. And so... At that point, you know, the, the the Rangers kind of put it into, you know, cruise control and, and didn't really have to do a whole lot more. Yeah, that was an experience. And Shayna will, will appreciate that one. She uh, she covers the Rangers for us, so I'm sure she will uh, remember that game quite vividly. All right, um, moving on. We got Nature bats last, and he says if Stutzel has gone at four and the Red Wings are picking fourth, would they go with Drysdale? Um, I know you've got an opinion here. Yeah, I mean, the only way they go with Drysdale is, I think, if if the top three picks are Lafreniere, um, you know, Stutzel, or I, actually, I can't even see a scenario where they go with Drysdale at four. I think uh, they're either going to take Rossi or Stutzel, and one of those two is is going to be there because if it's going to be Lafreniere and, and Byfield at one and two you're going to get your pick of Rossi and Stutzel. And I think to me, I think Rossi's the better player of the two. And so if Stutzel is is gone, then Detroit arguably is going to get one of the top three, if not top two players in this draft. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say I can't see a world where they take Jamie Drysdale because he's a really good player. But I think kind of considering what Rossi can be and especially what you and I think he can be, um, that's a time where I, you know, I would wonder kind of what the what is the the turnoff is it size or what because I I think Rossi has a lot of really good traits so I don't want to rule it out I don't think it's unreasonable for Jamie Drysdale to be drafted at number four um, I just think you know if, if there's a center like that there on the board I think the Red Wings should take him Yeah I think the only way Drysdale is drafted at four LA. is if somebody moves up. To, and Detroit's willing to move back. Oh, I see. To do yeah. it, um, which again, depending on how the the first three picks 
shake out, it may make a lot of sense if someone's that um, hung up on jumping ahead of L.A. to get Drysdale, um, knowing that L.A. will likely take Drysdale, uh, you may be able to get a nice package out of it to slide back a little bit and potentially still get a guy like Cole Perfetti or, or another elite, you know, potential talent. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, interesting way to look at it too. And, you know, if there's a, or, you know, Lucas Raven's still on the board there. And, um, I, I think that's an interesting way to think about it for sure. I think that's all we got for today. Um, so thank everybody for listening. I know this episode went a little long, uh, but thanks for, thanks for sticking with us and we'll be back at you in the middle of this week. Take care. <laughs>